This is District Sentinel Radio, that loud newscast on the left. I'm Sam Sachs. I'm Sam Knight. We are broadcasting out of the intern. Nate is not a worker. Studios in Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. We're still out of town, folks. We're on vacation. We'll be back on August 27th. Between now and then, we're releasing Sentinel Cast interviews on our SoundCloud. We take you back to May for today's interview. Sam and I chatted with Indiana University's Nathaniel Grow about the history of Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption and moves that can be made in the future to possibly break it. Enjoy. We've seen in the news lately a bunch of shady practices by Major League Baseball, some of which completely sanctioned by Congress, from minor league players making below minimum wage to major leaguers seeing their wages depressed this year from what appears to be collusion between teams to spend less money signing players. No matter the problem with baseball, there's a good chance it could be traced back to the MLB's antitrust exemption, which has persisted for nearly 100 years. But a couple cases pending before the Supreme Court right now could endanger that preferred status. We explored this issue earlier with Nathaniel Grow. He's Associate Professor of Business, Law, and Ethics at the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University. Take a listen to the interview. So, Nathaniel, you've got a post up over at Fangraphs discussing two cases uh, with appeals pending before the Supreme Court that could strike down Major League Baseball's antitrust exemptions uh, could being used uh, very strongly here because it's it's a pretty long shot, as you note. But let's start by laying some of the groundwork here. This exemption for baseball dates back to 1922. What has been the practical effect of it? Sure. So um, basically, at the most basic level, the antitrust exemption shields Major League Baseball and minor league baseball teams from antitrust lawsuits saying that these teams have colluded in various ways to harm competition, harm consumers, etc. And so if you look at kind of sports, the area of sports law generally, the other leagues, NFL, NBA, NHL, they've been hit with various antitrust lawsuits over um, relocation policies. So if the NFL says, no, we don't want you to move your team from St. Louis to Los Angeles, you know, that could trigger an antitrust lawsuit. Um, things over television broadcasting, you know, stuff like that. So the, the basic effect of this has been that MLB doesn't have to deal with those lawsuits. And, you know, there's pros and cons to that kind of from the public perspective, from the standpoint that you're a fan of a team and you don't want it to leave that market. For another location, baseball has been able to exert a lot more control over relocation thanks to its um, antitrust exemption than would be the case for the NFL, for example. You know, for things like the minor leagues pay for minor league players, which has been uh, publicized a lot recently about, you know, below minimum wage pay, that's kind of a negative effect of it, that baseball has been able to agree on some collusive uh, salary scales that uh, other leagues and other industries might not be able to ag- uh, agree upon due to the antitrust exemption. And that's something we've seen recently play out uh, with the free agent period and signing period heading into this year. Yep, exactly. And so especially, um, you know, with especially there's there's some, been some litigation involving uh, minor league pay and Congress passed a provision along those lines kind of shielding Major League Baseball from paying minor league players the minimum wage as part of the 
spending bill back in March. You know, all that, all that type of stuff is potentially challengeable under antitrust law, but for this antitrust exemption. The uh, the the minor league uh, thing seems uh, particularly nefarious, but it's kind of uh, interesting that this exemption has lasted ninety years throughout a period of history when uh, sort of economic interventionism uh, was quite popular uh, throughout the body politique with the uh, with the uh, Keynesian consensus. How has this been able to persist for so long? So it's a really good question. Um... It's kind of a fluke of history, is, is my take on it. So, you know, Sam noted back in 1922, the U.S. Supreme Court first decided a case involving Major League Baseball. And basically back then, well, I guess first of all, the Sherman Act only technically applies to quote-unquote interstate commerce. And uh, in other words, business activity between the states. And back in the 20s, courts took a really narrow view of that. And... The other distinguishing factor was that at the time, baseball's business was a lot different than it is today. There's no radio, there's no television. Basically, all the revenue that was generated was done in one stadium through ticket sales. And so, yes, players traveled from state to state, but in terms of the actual business activity, it was all generated in one state, you know, New York or Baltimore or wherever. And so the Supreme Court in 1922 says baseball's not interstate commerce. It's not bound by the Sherman Act. Baseball continues to develop over those next 30 to 40 years, 50 years. The court changes its, its jurisprudence. Now all of a sudden, basically everything is interstate commerce. But by the time it, this issue comes back up to the courts in the 50s and then finally in 1972 in the Curt Flood case, the court's kind of dealing with a situation where two factors persuade it to continue to abide by this antitrust exemption. One is that Congress has known about this issue for 50, you know, 30 to 50 years, has considered addressing it numerous times, but never really did anything about it. And you could definitely quibble with the court's logic, but they took that sign of, in the court's words, positive inaction. Basically, the fact that Congress didn't step in and correct this, according to the Supreme Court, suggests that Congress is okay with this or actually likes this outcome. The second kind of reason was that they also were worried that the courts act retroactively. Once this lawsuit comes up in 1972 or 1952 challenging baseball's antitrust exemption, the court says, well, if we overturn this here, then basically everyone else who's been hurt over the last 30, 40, 50 years, they can now come out of the woodwork and sue as well. And in antitrust cases, the damages are tripled. And so the court, rightly or wrongly, feared that if we overturn this exemption judicially, then Major League Baseball could be bankrupt and could be driven out of business due to all this legal liability. And so the court has consistently said, yes, we created this, but really this is a solution that Congress should try to resolve. And since Congress hasn't shown any interest in doing it, Congress could do it for you know on a going forward basis. They choose not to. We're just going to let things lie as they are. And you can criticize that logic. You know, you could have a reasonable debate about is that you know justifiable or not. But that's kind of the unique, you know, kind of peculiar history of this and how we still have this antitrust exemption ninety years later. Yeah, I, I got to say the uh, legal theory that congressional inaction is uh, approval for something probably doesn't hold much water nowadays. Yeah, and that's definitely, Justice Scalia really hated that line of logic in other cases, too. And, you know, a lot of different justices have kind of torn that apart. And I don't think that that argument would fly as strongly today. But in the 70s, when last time the court considered it, they, they bought into that, you know, right again, rightly or wrongly. Uh, 
jogging my memory, refreshing my memory, the only thing I can remember uh, Congress sort of making any moves like it would meddle in baseball, as it were, was last decade when they had the steroid hearings. Was there any uh, sort of talk then that Congress might want to step in and alter the uh, the unique relationship that Major League Baseball and Major League Sports have with uh, antitrust law? Yeah, so I think around the steroid era, there was some, you know, saber-rattling, so to speak, and I don't know if Congress was ever really that serious about it or was just trying to scare, you know, Major League Baseball into taking some action on the performance-enhancing drugs. Kind of throughout history, what you've seen is that every time Congress gets upset, every time there's some, like, public scandal or something involving Major League Baseball, Congress will get upset and they'll, you know, it's good PR for Congress to call, you know, all these baseball owners in before Congress and, you know, give them, you know, you know, give them the riot act. And, and so throughout history, they've kind of threatened to take this away, the antitrust exemption away, if baseball doesn't do whatever Congress wants. And so there's been times where MLB was demanding too much in terms of public subsidies for stadiums. And, you know, Congress got concerned about that and held hearings or, you know, the teams, you know, were going MLB was going to contract a couple teams back, you know, eliminate the franchises back in the early 2000s, and Congress held hearings over that. So it's kind of been this tool that Congress uses to, the threat of repeal has allowed Congress to pressure baseball to do things that it wants the league to do. Um, but in terms of actually seriously considering overturning it, there's been a bunch of hearings, but I don't think any bills have really progressed to the point that it it presented a real threat to baseball that they could lose this protection. Maybe once more baseball players start kneeling during the national anthem, you'll have the president and Congress really uh, following through on their threats. Yes, that could that could change things politically for sure. So let's break down these cases that have appeals pending before the court. First, Wyckoff versus the Office of the Commissioner. What's going on here and how could that provoke uh, antitrust exemption uh, reconsideration? So the Wyckoff case was filed in New York two or three, three or four, two or three years ago, I think back in 2015. And basically the, the claim there is filed by two plaintiffs who were former scouts for Major League Baseball teams. And so their claim is that baseball teams have effectively agreed not to compete for the services of one another's scouts, that they prevent scouts from jumping from team to team mid-season, and that they there's like various, like, salary provisions that, like, restrict competition between teams and whatnot. You know, MLB's kind of denied that this collusive agreement exists. And from what I understand, you know, reasonable minds could, again, kind of disagree on whether MLB's actually doing anything illegal here or not, but for this antitrust exemption. But the point basically is that the scouts believe that MLB teams have unlawfully colluded to depress their salaries. And so that was one challenge filed in New York. And the, the plaintiff's attorneys there tried to argue that this antitrust exemption shouldn't really apply here, but the, the lower courts didn't really buy that. And now the, the plaintiffs are left hoping that the Supreme Court will take that case and agree to reconsider the exemption. The, um, the other case was um, in dealing with Wrigley Field um, and some owners of some of the rooftop businesses across the street from Wrigley have been complaining that the Cubs are basically trying to drive them out of business and monopolize that business market and, again, kind of dealt with the same problem that the court said for a bunch of reasons this case doesn't really fly, but most notably baseball is exempt from antitrust laws, and so the Cubs are shielded. And now 
the rooftop owners are dealing with the same issue at, both, at the Supreme Court of trying to get around that exemption and get the court to uh, to repeal that prior precedent or at least restrict the scope of it. Well, one one friend of the show is a huge White Sox fan, so I'm sure he would be uh, tickled if the uh, if the court did grant cert to the uh, Cubs case and they ended up getting owned by the Supreme Court. Yeah, if ba- if baseball lost its antitrust exemption through the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> <laughs> that would be ideal. Um, so you, you've you've sort of broken down the history of this uh, antitrust exemption and how kind of outdated legal theory has underpinned it and how it's changed. And we now have the situation, as you note, in Fangra- on your Fangraphs post where baseball ha- is this unique entity among the major sports leagues. Should it be changed? How would you propose going about uh, making either... Uh, uh, legislative changes affecting baseball, or what sort of court case would need to be launched that would uh, that would uh, change the antitrust ex- have the best chance to break down this antitrust exemption? Sure. So I think um, I guess to answer the second question first, I think you know the strongest case would be something where the courts would say you know that this is whatever MLB is doing is just totally unjustifiable and reprehensible and you know as bad as you know the alleged activity towards the scouts is and you know some of these cases i don't really think that they raise the public ire as much as you know if MLB teams just directly like blatantly monopolize the industry and drove like a real competitive you know rival league out of business or something you know blatant you know high profile blatant activity I think that that's the sort of thing that could get the court involved. But baseball's always been pretty careful about kind of using its exemption on the periphery and like ways that it isn't going to get it in too much trouble politically, but yet could still get some benefit out of it. So I don't I don't know if the court is ever going to take one of these cases. It might it might take one of these two right now or sometime down the road. But you know, this thing's lasted for almost a hundred years, and so the smart money's probably on it. Not you know, the court not intervening anytime soon. Um, in terms of kind of you know strategy going forward, I think you know I'm kind of skeptical. Other people disagree with this, but I'm, I'm myself I'm a skeptic in terms of how much the antitrust exemption really means for Major League Baseball. I do think that there's areas where the league benefits and the public you know might benefit from it being repealed. The minor league stuff, the wages we talked about before, would be one of those areas. But I do think that in some ways it's it's helpful for the public to have more stability in these sports leagues and give Major League Baseball that ability to control franchise relocation in ways that you know the other leagues cannot. So I think I, I've been a proponent in some other work I've done academically of you know, it's out and out regulating the sports leagues governmentally. That I think in all four sports, you have these monopoly leagues that don't really have any outside competition. And even though the other three leagues are bound by antitrust law, they don't really face any significant competitive pressure in a lot of respects. And so, you know, they're able to enter into business practices that aren't necessarily in the public interest. And I think that, you know, I don't think, you know, baseball has this unique position, and it definitely draws a lot of attention because of this antitrust exemption. But I think a lot of the problems with Major League Baseball are really kind of endemic to American professional sports across the board. And to me, the the better answer is probably taking a look at all of the leagues and how the government might, you know, better regulate those to deal with the public interest rather than necessarily singling Major League Baseball out for um, for treatment. Do you think if we see more of what we saw this offseason in terms of depressing players' wages by not signing them, 
in, in ways that they were signed in previous years. If we see that practice continue moving forward a, f- a few more years, that that could be grounds for some suit? Or, I mean, these are all players still making a lot of money? Or, or yeah, yeah, I think that, um, so it's a good question, and potentially yes. I, the, part of the issue there legally is that the players are, bound, are represented by a union. And so under this really tedious and arcane thing known as the non-statutory labor exemption, Basically, courts say that as long as you're unionized and are kind of benefiting from the protections of federal labor law, you can't take advantage of federal antitrust law. And so for the players to really want to sue over, you know, some of, some of the um, practices that were highlighted over the offseason, they're going to have to totally dissolve the Major League Baseball Players Association and kind of move forward in a litigation strategy rather than a collective bargaining one. It, it's definitely possible that that could happen, especially the next time the, the next round of collective bargaining talks occur in 2021. If things are still pretty bad between, you know, the relations are still pretty bad, you definitely could see, you know, a labor stoppage emerge and, you know, it get to the point where the players say, you know, screw this, we're dissolving our union or we're taking you to court. I don't know if it'll ever get that far because, as you know, these guys are still making you know millions and millions of dollars, whether they're willing to risk all that to endure a long, lengthy you know, court process remains to be seen, but it's definitely possible. I don't know if I'd put my money on it, but it it could happen. As usual, there is more protection in a union than with the courts, (laughs) in my opinion. Well, well, yeah, and I think that, that, I think that in some ways that's definitely right. You know, the sports context is a little weird compared to other unions, just because Again, it kind of comes back to this idea these leagues have a monopoly. And so, you know, the NFL or the MLB can say, hey, we're just going to lock you guys out. And you have short careers, and you're losing millions of dollars here to sit this out. How much is this really worth it to you to fight for the rights of players five to ten years down the road, you know? And so the labor relations in the professional sports industry are weird compared to, I think, unionized industries elsewhere. Um, but at the same time, these guys are making a lot of money, and their unions have served them pretty well. So I don't want to say that you know they're not benefiting from it. They're definitely benefiting from it, but the, the leagues have some unique levers that they can use to, uh, to combat the union strategies as well. Well, we're, we're having this conversation now, but who knows what world we'll be in in a few years when the XFL reemerges. <laughs> Uh, with Vince McMahon, and then when he brings it to baseball, uh, XFL baseball, where uh, you're required to throw the ball at batters or something, <laughs> where there, there are brawls that, that in could, every that game. Could generate some litigation. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Nathaniel Groh, associate professor of business, law, and ethics at the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University. Thanks so much for coming on the show and uh, telling us about baseball. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. That'll do it for the show. Remember, regular newscasts resume on August 27th. We'll be back in D.C. so you don't have to be.